0: I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities. And we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers' House in our Wexler studio by Amber Rose Johnson, who once earned the title of the Poetry Out Loud National Recitation Champion and has since been featured on the Words for You Poetry album alongside Meryl Streep and James Earl Jones on NPR's The Writers' Almanac, on MSNBC's The Melissa Harris-Perry Show, and on stages across the U.S., whose current research explores Caribbean poetic theory and anti-colonial literatures of the Black Atlantic, who is a TA for the open online course called Modpo and is just all around a really good friend of the writer's house. And by Davy Niddle, author of the chapbooks Empathy for Cars, Force of July, Horseless Press 2016, and Cyclorama, the Operating System 2015. Like Amber Rose, a doctoral student in English at Penn who also curates the amazing City Planning Poetics series here at the Kelly Writers' House, scholar-investigator of the queer urban space and its relationship to contemporary poetics, and I'm thrilled to say is also, with Amber Rose and others, a teaching assistant for the ongoing online course called Modpo, and who is a reviews editor for Jacket 2 magazine, and I'm honored to say by Tonya Foster, A Bloomington-born and New Orleans-raised poet, author of the collection A Swarm of Bees in High Court, Belladonna, 2015, which Steph Burt described as the long-delayed American apotheosis of haiku form, and co-editor of the book Third Mind, Creative Writing Through Visual Art, 2002, whose work has been published in Best American Experimental Writing, Boundary 2, Litscapes, Collected U.S. Writings, 2015, Callaloo, Me Poesius, Western Humanities Review, The Hat, and many other venues who teaches creative writing at the California College of the Arts, which, Tonya, is in San Francisco, which means we are welcoming you here in chilly Philly from way across the country. Thank you so much for making the trip.
1: I'm delighted to be here, and I love the snow. You do? Born in Bloomington, I can't
0: complain. Well, let the record show that Tonya came to do a series of events, including a reading that was given and recorded just before this poem talk. But last night was supposed to do the same for the Temple University audience, and it got snowed out. How many inches did we get, Davy? You keep track of these things.
2: Uh, wildly variable, but between 8 and 12.
0: Between 8 and 12. Davy. thank you for hanging out with us today. Thank, thanks, Al. It's always good to see you. And Amber Rose, this is our second poem talk, and I've been looking forward to it all week.
3: As have I been. Thank okay. you so much, Al.
0: Fantastic. This is going to be fun. The four of us, Are here to talk about a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. It's called "Riot," and was published as a broadside by Broadside Press in 1969, and has been collected variously, including in the book "Blacks" of 1994. Now, the version we'll discuss is a much Shorter version than you'll find in the Broadside Press original. And I I, I assume we'll have a chance to talk about that because Tonya also knows that there are other epigraphs that are not with the short version. Our recording of Brooks performing this poem, and it is quite a performance, comes from a reading she gave at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City on May 3rd, 1983. So here now is Gwendolyn Brooks performing Riot riot is the
4: language of the unheard. John Cabot, out of Wilma, once a Wycliffe, all white-blue rose below his golden hair, wrapped richly in right linen and right wool, almost forgot his jaguar and late bluff. Almost forgot grand which is the best thing that ever happened to Scotch. Almost forgot the sculpture at the Richard Gray and Distelheim, the kidney pie at Maxim's, the Grenadine de Buffet, my Because the Negroes were coming down the street. Because the poor were sweaty and unpretty, not like two dainty negroes in Winnetka, and they were coming toward him in rough ranks, in seas, in wind sweep. They were black and loud, and not detainable, and not discreet. Gross, gross, catoue, grossie, John Cabot itched instantly beneath the nourished white that told his story of glory to the world. Don't let it touch me, the blackness, Lord, he whispered, to any handy angel in the sky. But in a thrilling announcement on it drove and breathed on him and touched him. In that breath, the fume of pigfoot chitterling, and cheek chilly, malign mocked John, and in terrific touch, old averted doubt jerked forward decently, cried, Cabot, John, you are a desperate man, and the desperate die expensively today. John Cabot went down in the smoke and fire, and broken glass and blood, and he cried, Lord! Forgive these niggas that know not what they do.
0: Amber Rose, I'm guessing that you read the poem before you heard that recording. So what's what's the tone of the performance? Was that a little bit of a surprise to you?
3: That is a spectacular performance. Even on Brooks
0: standards, which are pretty high for performance.
3: Right. Yeah, she really goes above and beyond for this performance. But it was a little surprising. There's so much punctuation that's working in the way that she performs the poem that's absent from the way that it's written. And it totally changes the kind of tenor and texture. You get so much sass in her performance that really complicates... I mean, she's already telling a very complicated story about these riots, right, and this relationship to Con- John Cabot. But the sassiness that you get in her voice that's absent from the text just on the page totally illuminates illuminates the, the thrust of
1: the poem in a different way.
0: Tanya, what do you make of the performance?
1: Well, it also changes the blank verse. That parts of this poem are in blank verse, and there's this, this sort of movement to sort of set up the... The, the meter of English poetry um, and to somehow show, to crack it open, almost. And that that's what that performance certainly does for me. And I think that's remarkable. Um, there's also something about this, this way that it begins with a riot. The epigraph is, a riot is the language of the unheard, which we didn't hear her read. And so I...
0: I think she did at the very beginning. It may have been clipped a little bit. Did anybody look up which King's essays? Yes, The Other America. It's from The Other America. It's perfectly selected for this poem, isn't it?
1: It is perfectly selected for this poem, particularly because in in that particular speech, King sets up two Americas, points to um, the beautiful America and then the other america which is not beautiful
0: unpretty which is counter, as she would say yeah. which
1: is unpretty and so what is the language spoken in that space um yeah it's kind of remarkable how her voice adds another iteration another measure
0: yeah davy can we pick out and and we can do it together the two of us pick out some phrases that follow nicely from Tonya's idea that the blank verse is brought back into a meter at certain moments. I guess I'll start with one, and then I'll turn it to you. The way she says, in parentheses, two dainty Negroes in Winnetka." Now, Winnetka is a is a white suburb, um, but t- making that a sound is quite a with the sass is quite a thing, right? Do you have a phrase that where the meter comes out?
2: Where I was looking to that was at the other end of that stanza, in seas, in windsweep, they were black and loud. And that the way that that comes apart in the reading feels like it's both picking up on some of the emphasis of the meter and then also pulling apart the line as that's happening.
0: Yeah. Ambrose, let's get started on John Cabot. What did you make of this figure? (laughs) John Cabot. OK,
3: so here we are, given John Cabot, this like 15th century explorer from Italy, totally collapsed in time and space now in Chicago in the midst of these riots. Part of what I I love about this poem is that it's... Um, a kind of, I I don't want to, I am going to say, but don't really want to say revisionist history. I think it's a little more complicated than that. But imagining John Cabot in this moment with his, you know, white blue rose and golden hair, the way she drags that O on golden and totally paints such a vivid picture of him, stoic and like perfect. And poor John is desperate and pathetic in this poem.
0: So John Cabot, the one you mentioned, historical one you mentioned, is the is the Italian who ended up in England and was sent off to find a passage to India. But there are others. There's the the Wycliffe. The Wycliffe is a is a um, an early Reformation of the Wycliffe family. So an early British or English Reformationist. Who went against, who was actually a person of principle, you might say who went against the Catholic Church and the um, and the Pope at the time when Cabot died of natural causes, dug up the body and had it burned, so there is in the Wycliffe story a person of a, a white person of principle who was opposing the corruption of the Catholic Church, so Brooks is really complicating things by bringing John Cabot in here. Tonya John Cabot, what do we do with that figure?
1: Well, I think it's, it's also that the Cabot name has long sort of historical reference in, in New England and that there's some way that Cabot is set up. It's significant to me that she uses a kenning. Right, white, blue, rose. She uses these compounded phrases in order to point to a particular kind of whiteness in her description of him, which is remarkable. She also has this incredible list of objects that are meant to signal wealth, status, and position. That she has him speak in French is pretty significant, as if his ability to speak Colonizing language will, in fact, save him in this moment. Mm. And that it sets him up, certainly at the end, when he does his sort of martyred, you know, forgive them, they know not what they do. So there are all these ways that his uh, whiteness and his wealth are signaled or, and set in contrast to um, the sort of overwhelming wave that's sweeping down the street.
0: Mm. So this is uh, written in 69?
1: This is published in 69.
0: So written at the time of the riots the previous year and the previous year. Right. Before that. So 68 would be – there would be post-King assassination riots and, of course, the riots associated with the Chicago Democratic Convention.
1: Exactly. And it's also – it's her first publication. It's published in the chapbook, Riot, but it's her first post-Harper and Row publication that comes – sort of right after she completely turns away from Harper and Rowe and the major publishers and spends the next 30 years publishing with Broadside Press and other small presses. And I'm I, i I'm not sure if
3: this is the case with all of her work with, with Broadside Press, but I know that for Riot, the royalties went back to Dudley Randall so that he was able to publish more. So with that, that turn away from Harper and Rowe, there was... A, a real commitment to not just publishing with the small press, but, but economically giving back to it and feeding into
0: it. Hmm. What's the it, Davy? Capitalize it once or twice?
2: Mm-hmm. But in a thrilling announcement on it drove.
0: On it uh, drove.
2: There are a couple of things happening there. One is thinking about the collectivity of folks who are participating in the riot And that being a black collectivity, which he's responding to. And it also feels important that part of what that it is, is a usage of urban space. That where he goes to try to do his colonial project, that where he sort of pivots himself in this like weird, temporally shaky moment, is back to these suburban spaces. So we get Lake Bluff. We get Winnetka. uh, We get all of his points of reference being suburban points of reference. And so he's then in this urban space, in this urban streetscape. Uh, and it feels important that like, that's the locus of his panic. And that's part of the it. That's populating the relationship between people in space. Wow. That Can we is go Ryan.
0: one step further on the your observation about yeah. the urban situation? Because yep. he is clearly a suburbanite yep. who comes into town, mm-hmm. probably in his Jaguar. Yep. But we have, who knows Chicago here? We have um, the Richard Gay Gray mm-hmm. Gallery and mm-hmm. Distelheim Galleries, both galleries. Maxim's, uh, a restaurant, like very a decadent interior, Chicago restaurant. Maison Henri opened in 1965. Those are in the t- in the city. Mm-hmm. So this is a wealthy, privileged, white, colonial project guy, John mm-hmm. Cabot coming from the suburbs into the city and that's where <laughs> yeah. he encounters it
3: yeah yeah i'm interested in this i'm interested in this isolated line it's the only isolated line yeah. at least in this version of the poem that we're looking at because the negroes were coming down the street and that seems to be the moment where the negroes and the street are actually collapsing mm-hmm. in a way that yeah. needed to be distinct because it marks kind of a turn uh, in the poem, and what's happening with that public space. I also love hearing her say Negroes in that line because she draws out the O, and you can see both this this group of people kind of expanding and the riot growing, and the street street collapsing, and all of that is is being marked in her voice.
0: And then in a few lines, Tanya, it becomes naturalized. For better or worse, they are coming down the street. And it's, it sees, it's windsweeping, it's, uh, it's an inexorable force.
1: Well, and this is the thing that's, that's intriguing to me. Like, I, I also think this is about poetry, that the entire chapbook is about artifice. And that there's some way in which the things that, um, that are made, that John Cabot points to, they are not able to save him at the end of the day, and he keeps going back to them because he ima- because they're a reflection of his power in the world. And he imagines that in this moment, in this moment of the riot, that he can call on the, on those things to reinscribe his own sort of power in that space. and he cannot control. Um, the masses, which are a mass in movement together.
0: Wow. Can we stay on this metapoetic reading for a little longer? Um, The King epigraph is the same. A riot is the language Mm -hmm. of the unheard. It's not the language we speak is a riot of unheard voices. Mm -hmm. It's a riot is the language. Um, There's that, and... Then there's this idea that you all have been talking about earlier, you, Tanya, in particular, that, the, that what, what Brooks is doing is she's taking blank verse and – I don't know if, what the right word is for this – metricalizing it and bringing – and using her high tone, her sarcasm or her sass to make a high poetry and essentially to um, take back what poetry is. Okay, I said two things that are metapoetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we go from there?
1: Well, we can. Like, I, I think there's, there's something tremendous about thinking about what the shift is. This marks a dramatic shift in Brooks's poetic style. It doesn't mark a dramatic shift in what she attends to right so but you mean
0: th- thematically it's not a shift
1: thematically poetically it's not a, sh- it's a shift poetically it's a shift there's something about her sense of who she's talking with that's changed that this is part of a booklet that is a small chapbook that people can pay a quarter for or 50 cents for so it becomes something that's being distributed in the corner store or wherever Dudley Randall will distribute it and something people can read fairly quickly. And so this is the opening poem in that shift for her, which is, you know, how do I have poetry of and by and for the people? I mean,
0: so it's a, a, that's a huge... R- no, claim. no, that, it's a, ra- it's a in terms of the means of poetic production, it's a radical left populist alternative and the lead poem or the lead section is a riot in which whiteness i mean what happens to john in the last three lines of this excerpt is uh, he went down in smoke and fire so there's no there's no doubt what happens to him and this is the the sort of leading gesture in this people's poetry mm-hmm. and the, basically the revolution of taking the means of poetic production mm-hmm.
2: And the revolution also of producing an anti-colonial means of poetic John production. Cabot, John John That feels important. Yeah.
4: Because the Negroes were coming down the street. Because the poor were sweaty and unpretty. Not like two dainty Negroes in Winnetka. And they were coming toward him in rough ranks in seas, in windsweep. They were black and loud and not detainable and not discreet.
0: Amber you began by talking about the powerful, energizing sass. Um, can you reflect a little more on that? I do love
3: the performance. I mean, I, when we were listening to it, I was going through and circling some different words that she really focuses on, the right linen and right wool i mean these things color the way that we imagine them right you can say john La- john cabot was in this l- linen and in the wool but it's the t at the end of the right that speaks to <laughs> the texture of the whiteness that we're talking about the negroes that are that are dragged out his jaguar almost forgot exclamation point after that t um, in a thrilling announcement, I was thinking about, again, this the, the riot as the language of the unheard, and, and that took me to this line. But in a thrilling announcement, it drove and breathed on him. And to think of an announcement and the action to drive as a kind of language. And so then speaking and being and moving and moving on are all wrapped up in the same thing. Um, the Lord that's at the end, cry, Lord. <laughs> um, these niggas that know not what they do. I mean, she's she's informing kind of the, the ideas that circulate with these words that exceed just a dictionary definition.
0: And then when she parenthetically defines his Grand Tully, which is his favorite scotch, in all caps, well, each word is a cap, and it's... Advertising language, that's the extent of his bullshit poetry. His sense of poetry is some some ad for this Scotch, and she really does a number on the best thing that ever happened to Scotch. It's so shallow.
2: And usefully, that we get... What the poem is, is populating the space around him. That like his shallowness, his negative space is where the poem happens is what's interesting to the poem. It's interesting that he's the subject that we keep hanging out with John Cabot. We start and we end with him, but the poem is tremendously not interested in him, but trying to like see through him and see around him into the spaces that he can't and doesn't want to and refuses to be a part of or be interested in. So...
3: This line, John Cabot itched instantly (laughs) beneath the nourish white. Mm -hmm. I think that idea of itching beneath the white kind of gets at Davy's point of there's this world that's sort of encapsulating this John Cabot. But beneath that, the, the, the riot is getting beneath that to a place where he is totally unprotected. Um, and is itching in the discomfort and looking, still looking for the borders of this whiteness as protection, but almost can't see what's immediately affecting him.
1: When it's his flesh, he's again cast, he's cast into his body and, and that it's actually contact with the it, with the blackness, with the Negroes that come as this sort of well of, of energy and of life. It's also flesh. Mm-hmm. And his moment of contact feels like, for him, it's something diseased that he responds to. And so she points to, because the poor were sweaty and unpretty, they were coming at him. I mean, there's that wonderful sound. They were coming toward him in rough ranks, in swees, in wind sweeps. They were black and loud. And so there's no escaping the body that he's in in that moment. And there's no escaping the death that he imagined he could escape through the construction of all these things around him. There's no getting away from it.
0: The first encounter with whiteness we have in the poem is this put-together word, white-blue-rose. Mm-hmm. Um it gets elaborated later with nourished white, but here, what do we do with the white blue rose? I mean, to me, it's red, white, and blue. I mean, it's American. Mm-hmm.
2: It's also like being able to see through his body into his veins and his blood. It's like
0: it really is white.
2: That relationship sort to beneathness. I mean, because what happens to him at the end? Translucence, right? And he goes down. John Cabot went down as though he were a ship of his own colonial project. Like he's taken out as though he were a vehicle, and that beneathness that we get in. The line that Amber Rose, you were just talking about uh, beneath the nourished white, uh, that relationship to beneathness is something we're getting from the very first mention of his whiteness in that second line, and it's also blue blood,
0: right? There's blue right. blood, yeah. in so it.
2: that that signal of the idea of
1: nobility, American blue blood.
0: Amber Rose.
3: I'm thinking about all of these symbols and the way that they speak to both a specific or discreet whiteness and also a totally indiscreet, totally unspecific whiteness. And then I'm looking at, uh, in the in that breath, the fume of pigfoot, chitterlings, and cheap chili. And thinking again about that being discreet and specific and totally uh, indiscreet. And the way that that's working as a kind of overdetermination of blackness that he's coming up against, but that is very real in this riot that is both people and street and space. And how these kind of two, she set up in both a specific and not specific way, these overdetermined understandings of what race does and how it feels and how it materializes and what it looks like if they were to meet on a street
1: and who and what gets named, Mm -hmm. right? That he has a name, that his places are named, that his scotch is named, his car is named, that the signals of blackness are not named, are not particularized, and that there's some way in which it is not... I don't know if it's the... There's something about the idea of the naming um, that's about a certain kind of whiteness, but also a certain performance of power.
2: And that feels important in the way the poem closes, that the smoke and fire and broken glass and blood in which he went down, he's obviously not the only person who's dying in that space. And yet it's his death that we close with, and that performance of power leads him, like his his undoing is what we're being set up for from the beginning of the po- poem by means of his relationship to the riot. But the loudness of that also uh, supersedes our ability to see what's happening to anyone else. There are no other bodies in that stanza except for his.
0: And to be sure or to be specific, this is a play on on Luke, New, New Testament, Luke chapter 23, verse 24, and obviously it's ironized, but I suppose we should spell that out a little bit. Why does he get to say something that that one would say as a witness of the crucifixion? Is he well, witnessing his own demise and trying to make it uh, Christian?
1: Well, I don't know that he's trying to make it Christian. I think that he's trying to assert his own power and his own rightness, that even in the moment of his death, he doesn't see what's in front of him. He doesn't see what's happening. And instead, he's still re-inscribing, re- what, coming up with some other way of narrating what exactly is going on. And it's, oh, I'm Jesus on the cross. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. and, 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 and it wasn't – I'm not the one who came up with the um, story about the John Cabot's uh, ancestor Wycliffe, John Wycliffe. Uh, that was I, f- I found it in a critical study at Brooks, an early critical study. and But the point there to repeat is that Wycliffe is considered a martyr because he went against the corruption of the Catholic Church, led a principled resistance to the orthodoxy of his day. This is the descendant, the completely degraded, superficial white descendant of that major resistance mm-hmm. uh, which went down in flames, in fire. They dug him up and burned him. And this is the descendant. And so the 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 ironic reclamation of Christian principle at the end is is completely empty and that works. All right, let we we could talk about this poem for a long time, but let's why don't we go around and get final thoughts? Something that you came here to say about the poem but didn't have a chance to. So Davy?
2: Yeah. Uh, something that I imagine that we might talk about is just the, these uh, two half sentences that come after the stanza we've been talking about quite a bit. Uh, uh, the line reads, and not detainable and not discreet. Detainable feels really important here, mm-hmm. that uh, this is... Uh, participating in both thinking about legacies of slavery and legacies of imprisonment, and, and
0: also what happens to rioters, and also they what happens,
2: right? And what happens to rioters, and what happens to some rioters and not other rioters, and uh, thinking about uh, his fear being based in uh, the fact that these rioters are not detainable uh, feels really important and feels like. Uh, a thread through this poem that has maybe been beneath some of our conversation, but that it would be great to, you know, think more about. And then I imagine that, like, the counterfactual in which we had this conversation all night, we would think about it a lot.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Davy. Tanya, final thought?
2: There's
1: a—I I don't know if this is a final thought as much about the poem. I'm picturing the um, the chapbook, which you can access online at Eclipse. I think has the, and there's an image um, of two young boys facing a um, a window pane, and they have one has a, a statue in his hand, just kind of holding it, and um, and there's the possibility for action in that window. Um, and that's the first thing in the the first page you see when you open this black chapbook, which has riot in kind of a um, bullet hole uh, with riot in red, that that's what you open to. And I think of, um, there's something I wanted to read, I guess, that's the Henry Miller epigraph. That's oh, yes, a part please. of that. Um,
0: so this was an extra epigraph that was originally with? That's on the back of it,
1: and it's taken from—it's on the back of the chapbook, and it's uh, from Miller's Sunday After the War, which was published in 1944. And it says, "It it would be terrible for Chicago if this black fountain of life should suddenly erupt. My friend assures me there is no danger of that. I don't feel so sure about it. Maybe he's right. Maybe the Negro will always be our friend, no matter what we do to him. Um,
0: Henry Miller.
1: Henry Miller from 1944 on the back of that chapbook. And there's something about that, uh, this poem, that's an articulation of uh, not only the sort of hope that that it opens with this kind of ex- uh, takedown of John Cabot. But it actually goes on to the kind of complexity of loss at the same time that it's pu- picking apart. It's the poem in which she talks about the black blues, uh, another kenning in which she really writes about um, the, the other kind of music, that can be heard. And it's that music that I think she gives voice to in Riot.
0: Wow, thank you very much. Amber Rose, final thought.
1: My final thought,
3: I guess, is around how sensory this whole poem is. And sensory, I mean, we have so much taste and touch and sight and smell. And so a riot becomes a kind of sensory overload. But a riot is also a distinct language in and of itself.
0: The poem's kind of a riot.
3: Yeah, it is. Yes. So I'm trying to think, I I, I guess I'm still sort of thinking through this kind of sensory overload as a way of speaking that does not require translation Hmm. or transmediation. So what happens when we take all of these sensories to be riotous and that riotous speaks without translation?
0: Fantastic. That really, so beautifully, Ambrose, Rose, um, returns us to your first comment about the performance. I mean, there's a, she's amped it up to the point of riotousness, you know, sonorous and metrical and emphatic riotousness. So I guess my final thought follows from that, because I'll throw out my other one, having heard that brilliant point. The desperation of John Cabot, that it or they assigned to him they, we see, you're all put together in the first stanza, but we see how desperate you are, and the desperate die expensively today. Expensively is a really powerful word there, because it's not simply the, ex, you know, the jaguar is probably going to go too, so there's a certain amount of expense. But expense as in express, uh, put out an expense, um, and he would be the last person or someone sharing his whiteness as it's characterized here would be the last to think of themselves as desperate, right? But this unnamed it assigns desperation and then dying expensively. And I think the poem is a kind of expensive poem in the way you just meant it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, a chance for several of us or all of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Davey, you just look kind of look like a guy who's got a gathering paradise ready. Like you came in here knowing
2: Uh, You know this, that in the last few weeks, I've super fallen in love with a 2016 essay by Afin Enka called Stick Figures and Little Bits Toward a Non-Binary Pedagogy, which is a totally amazing uh, way of thinking about uh, the way classroom spaces are gendered and is a really amazing uh, essay to read uh, in conversation with the work of Eileen Miles. It was like made to read with Eileen Miles' poetry. Uh, So go do that.
0: And in fact... We together We're gonna do that. You and Amber Rose and I and Uh some others are actually going to teach that essay in a course that's focusing on pedagogy. So and miles that week. So great suggestion. Yeah, cool. Tanya, gather some paradise for us. Gather some paradise. So my By the way, it's paradiesal to have you here with us. (laughs) It's paradise, just that alone. Thank you. Yeah. It's such a pleasure.
1: Um, Sylvia Winter is blowing my mind, as always, but on being human as noun, on being human as praxis. She revisits this essay, uh, 1984 essay in 2007, and um, writes a, um, a kind of preface, a preamble to the essay that talks about kind of real examination or return to reclamation of the project of, um, of making a human or signifying what's human. And she said that she failed. In the original essay. And so she wanted to revisit it. And she points to Fanon, she points to Aristotle, she points to Bloom. But it's really quite incredible. And I've been reading that and thinking about it next to um, Keats refers to Wordsworth or the Wordsworthian as the egotistical sublime. Um, and. And sets himself up as being distinct from that, a distinct kind of poet. And so I'm interested in the project in, um, in African diasporic poetry that tries to reimagine the subject position um, that is not merely the position of being the other. Um, but actually reimagines what's possible in the human space and what can be radical in that space.
0: That's a great suggestion. Can you say the title again of the essay?
1: Yes, it's On Being Human as Noun,
0: On Being Human
1: as Praxis.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Tonya. Amber Rose, gather some paradise.
3: I was also going to give a Sylvia Winter plug because I am... Equally obsessed with her work, always. But instead, I will recommend the jazz trumpeter Christian Scott Atunde, who, whose album he has one album that I've been listening to obsessively called Stretch Music. I believe he's from New Orleans, Um, and he's just doing really, really incredible things. He has a tiny desk performance. Where he just is oh, theorizing uh, really beautifully in between these really incredible performances. So I would recommend watching
0: that. Fantastic. Well, some great Gathering Paradise. So I'll do my Gathering Paradise. Um, it's Tanya M. Foster's A Swarm of Bees in High Court, which is a book I read the moment it came out and reread recently in anticipation of your coming here. And when you said something about the when you were talking about the it, In the Brooks poem, there was a page of this book that it reminded me of, and I found it. And it's the first page of haiku-like stanzas in the section called Obad. Do we pronounce it that way? Obad? Anyway, it's the... yeah. I mispronounced it. I always mispronounce it. Obad. Obad. Anyway, it's It's a poem written in morning after a night, right? And this is the uh, as-always section... Uh, which ends with a wonderful redefinition of pronoun. I wonder if you would read the page for us. You didn't prepare for this, but...
1: As always, there is the beat of siren and bass breaking the coarse dawn. As always, there is some quadruped barking or meowing light's hems. As always, there here is daily asphalt news, your our flesh and heat attend. As always, there is a closed face watching from lit and open windows. As always, there here is passage, door, street, gauntlet, before, between, and then. As always there here is love tossed among vials spent shells this his quiet leaving as always there here is this his framed time when we becomes i among many
0: a swarm of bees in high court that's my gathering paradise thank you so much well, that's all the not-detainable we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Amber Rose Johnson, Davey Niddle, Tanya Foster, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer, up kind of late tonight, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, and by the time he edits this, he will have had some, some rest. The same amazing Zach Cardner. And a shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us again next month for another episode of Poem Talk.